For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul is writing this epistle to his friend Titus to establish leadership and sound doctrine on the island of Crete, which was a very populous island, and there were lots of individual congregations, and it was his job to get out and make sure that they were all functioning properly. And the last set of verses we read was him going through each demographic of the church, old men, young men, old women, young women, and explaining what their specific moral and practical instruction was to be. And as you saw, it got rather specific in some cases. And Titus teaching these things, especially knowing what we did about the character of the Cretans, he might have encountered something like the, the one preacher did when he was preaching a tough message and this old country boy came up and said, Pastor, I'm used to you preaching, but this morning you was meddling. <laughs> I'm fine with you preaching doctrine and everything, but you were getting a little too close to home. And so this is the question that this section is answering. Why should a pastor do that? Why should a pastor be meddling, so to speak? Why should he be speaking not just generally about the gospel and about morality, but specifically, even on matters related to a demographic that he does not belong to? And I would say many Christians, if not most who claim the name of Christian at least, that's how they think about preaching, is this is something to give us a nice little inspirational message for the week, uh, something to give us some general principles, general philosophy to, you know, stimulate the mind a little bit, or uh, to give us some good ethical instruction that we already agree with, but, you know, it's just good to hear it said out loud. But that is not what the Bible gives us. The Bible tells us to speak authoritatively on matters that relate to individual lives. Now, you might say, why? Why would you do that? Well, Paul answers in verse 11 because he says that word for again, which is connecting us to the previous section. Teach these things for or because. He's going to justify moral instruction with theological instruction. Why should Titus preach this way? Why should Pastor Tyler teach this way? Because he says Jesus has come, died, and risen again. The grace of God has appeared. Teach this way. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God. This is, of course, a reference to Jesus, that Jesus has come into the world. This passage is often read around the Christmas season in some churches because it talks about the appearance of Jesus. But he doesn't name Jesus by name in this section. He calls the grace of God. So specifically, the heart of God that Jesus was to represent when he came in the flesh. Maybe you've ever wondered, I wonder what God would be like if he was a person. Do you realize that we know the answer to that question? He looks like Jesus because Jesus represents God to us. And he calls it here the grace of God. That's the Greek word charis. Maybe you've met somebody named charis, but that's the word charis. It means grace or God's favor towards somebody, especially the Old Testament, when you translate the Hebrew word chen as grace, it's that word of favor, like from a king, as in when Esther came into the throne room of her husband and he extended the scepter towards her and he gave her the favor of the king. It's God's disposition of love and benevolence toward man. This is so key for us to realize because if you were to just think about what does God think of man, might think, ah, he probably doesn't think too much of man. Probably not too pleased with man. 
But the truth is, God's disposition towards men is that of grace. When the Son of God came, Paul can describe it as the grace of God appearing. And that's when it happened. The appearance of God's grace was the incarnation of Christ, which is what Christmas is all about, the incarnation. You know, maybe some Spanish, the word carne means meat or flesh. It's a Latin word. So incarne means to be in flesh or embodied. When the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Godhead, became a man and came to the earth and was born to a woman named Mary in a town called Bethlehem. That was God made flesh. John 1 talks about this. It says, The Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. A lot of folks talking today about the importance of the Logos to Western culture. The only importance the Logos has to Western culture is that it became flesh. Should I say he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's given to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Are you picking up on a theme in those verses? That when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it was the appearance of God's grace. The Son of God became a man to practically and actually live out God's disposition of grace toward humanity. And when that grace appeared, Paul says, it was bringing, it brought salvation The grace of God appeared. The positive disposition of God appeared through the incarnation of his son, bringing salvation. Salvation from what, we might ask? There are a lot of folks who get real snarky about this. They say, oh, get saved from what? What's God going to save us from? From the penalty of your sin. From the wrath of God poured out against wickedness, which is death forever in hell. Salvation from hell. Now, some people don't really like that very much. They say, so God sent his son to die on the cross to save me from what he was going to do anyway? Why didn't he just decide not to do that? That is a person who thinks rather highly of themselves. They don't think that they have sin that needs to be corrected or judged. It's a similar attitude to somebody who is on death row for killing a whole bunch of people. And the judge offers him a pardon. He says, if you promise that you will Make restitution. If you will go out and do community service, then I will, I will allow you to go free. And he says, well, you got the power to let me go free? Then just do it. Don't put your own punishment over me. Don't be selfish. It's like, hey, man, you're the one that did the crime. You should be glad that you're even getting the opportunity to be saved. Because Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. How many people have foolishly said, I just want God to give me what I deserve? I don't think you do. (laughs) I don't think you do. You don't even want your mom and dad to give you what you deserve or your boss to give you what you deserve. Many times when we get upset for people not giving us what we're owed, what we mean by that is I really wanted them to be extra nice to me and then they weren't. Well, that's not what you're owed. Wages is what you're owed. But God said, but I've got a free gift for you. When Jesus Christ came, he took our flesh. The Bible says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He bore our penalty in that flesh on the cross, died, and then rose again so that he could offer us free grace. The word for grace and gift are very closely related to one another. I'm going to give you salvation for free. 
That's what the appearance of God's grace means. The gospel, the appearance of Jesus, means salvation from hell. Salvation from eternal death and damnation. Separation from God. Who is this for? Salvation for all men. For all people. This is important to know. This is not saying that when Jesus came, this is not universalism, that everybody will be saved. It means the opportunity for salvation the offer of salvation has come to all people. There are many who will reject that offer of salvation. But it's come for everybody. It's not reserved for Jews. It's not reserved for Americans or any other such group. It's for any who will receive the grace of God. So all of this is, again, to justify what we saw in verses 1 through 10. He justifies moral instruction with theological instruction. Why can Titus be meddling in the life of his church? Because of the gospel. Because of the salvation that we find in the grace of God manifest in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you might hear that and say, hold on a minute, how does that track? Okay, I believe in the gospel. Why does that mean you get to tell me how to live my life, Pastor Titus? Well, Paul will explain that too. Verse 12 through 13. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How does the gospel relate to good works? You know, some people think it doesn't. There are some people who think what you believe about God is completely disconnected from the way I live my life. You will see people advocating for the most horrendous kinds of sins and acting in a very sinful manner. But you ask them a question about their theology, oh, I believe in Jesus. And you say, well, wait a minute, how does the language that was just coming out of your mouth or the actions that you've committed or the profession in which you engage, how does that track with your relationship with Jesus? And they'll get very offended by that. Say, how dare you? Only God knows my heart. Only God understands, to which I would say, uh, I don't think so, because the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we know what's in your heart because of the things you say, but that's another sermon for another day. So some people think that it doesn't affect your life at all. There are some preachers even that will say, I'm just going to tell the truth and then leave you alone and, and trust that the Holy Spirit will work in you. Well, that sounds very spiritual, except the Holy Spirit has told us what that message is supposed to do. Paul explains the effects of the gospel here. The subject is still the grace of God. So the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. What else is the grace of God doing? Training us. Training us. The word is paiduo. It's related to the word for child. You maybe heard of pediatric before. So paiduo is related to the word for a, a child. Or you maybe heard of pedagogy, which is teaching, a philosophy of teaching. It's related to the same word. So this is not just training, like a military training. This is specifically the instruction and discipline brought to a child. Jesus said you've got to become like a what? A little child if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. It's his way of saying, don't get too big for your britches. You don't know anything about God and you're a sinner. I'll accept you, but you've got to be willing to renounce all that so that my grace can train you. Take you to school, you might say. Like a schoolmaster. That's what the grace of God is. Represented by, of course, the incarnation, everything we just said. And this verse, there are these sets of verses, gives us three things that the gospel teaches us. This is showing us the effect that the gospel should have. Another common thing people say is 
there's really no right way to do Christianity, which uh, is unfortunately not very biblical at all. Somebody who's going to say that is usually not going to have much room for what the scriptures has to say, but we do. So let's not worry about them. Let's worry about us. What are the three things the gospel teaches us? First, to renounce, to renounce. You know what it means to renounce something? It means to turn away from it. So I never want anything to do with that and live a different way. And this is two parts in a Christian life. This renunciation is number one, your initial repentance. You know, many people like to downplay that initial moment of conversion because I don't know why they think it gives them superiority over Billy Graham or something, I guess. But they say, well, that's not discipleship. I'm like, I, I agree with you. But Peter gave lots of altar calls in the book of Acts, too. That initial moment of turning away is very, very important. I love telling the story. I told it to my kids again yesterday when my great grandfather got saved. My grandpa got saved and he was like 11 or 12 years old and he was made fun of by his dad and you bring all that sissy stuff into my house. And when he goes to get baptized, I said, Dad, will you at least come to my baptism? I'm not coming to your baptism. I raised you better than that. And well, there they are in the church. And there's my grandpa Leonard sitting in the back of the church with his, his Sunday suit on, you know, and uh, he doesn't know anything about church, but knows he's supposed to wear a suit, right? And he sits in the back, and pastor gives the gospel message and gives the altar call, and he says, every head bowed and every eye closed, if you'd like to come receive Jesus, will you come forward to the altar? And my grandpa Leonard got up from the back and sprinted down the aisle, tie flapping in the breeze, and threw himself down to the altar. And my grandpa was like, I was really excited, but I was also kind of embarrassed. I'm still a teenager here, and there's my dad, like, running in church, you know. And, uh, you know, it was Baptist church, so there you go. But maybe for your church, it wasn't me so embarrassing, but for him, it kind of was. And he goes, Dad, I'm, I'm really glad you got saved, but what was that all about? And he goes, Son, I, I knew I was a sinner, and I knew I was going to hell, and I was scared to death that I would die before I got down to that altar. <laughs> to be saved. And we hear that and, you know, you could be all theological and say, well, God sees your heart. And it really, it's like, that was his moment of renunciation, right? It mattered. But it's not just that, y'all. It's a lifestyle of renunciation that I'm not living this way anymore. Where those critics I mentioned a second ago have a point is if somebody only has an initial moment of renunciation and then continues to live the same way, you ought to question what was really going on there. He gives us two things here that we're supposed to renounce. Number one is ungodliness. Pretty straightforward, right? Anything that is not like God, I want nothing to do with it. God is our moral example. In fact, that's where morality comes from. You can define anything that is right as whatever is godly, whatever is like God. And if it's not like God, then it's ungodly, and we renounce that. We follow God's example. We follow his word. God's word is law for the Christian. We're going to do what he says because he said it, because he's God. He saved my soul, and I am renouncing ungodliness. And secondly, worldly passions, worldly passions. These are those activating drives that everybody else follows. What motivates people? That's a worldly passion. They're not all sinful. Most things can be sinful to excess. The Bible does not much care for that word passion. We use it a, use it a little differently. When we say we're passionate about something, we mean strong emotion, and that's okay. The Bible's all right with that. But in the New Testament sense, passion is much more being swept away by your emotions, being swept away by a desire or a drive you have. And we still talk that way, don't we? Oh, I just couldn't help myself. 
You know, how could the two of you commit fornication that way? Oh, we were in love. That's worldly passion, right? We allowed the deep desires and the, the heat of the moment to drive us to a place where we did something sinful. I just could not be so angry. Worldly passions, right? I know I shouldn't talk that way. I know I shouldn't treat them that way, but you know, I still haven't gotten over this tragic thing that happened. That's worldly passion. We renounce those things. It's not that we don't feel these things. We no longer allow them to be an excuse for sin. We can, we can do this. You know, if we're going through a trial, we're going through a hard time, sometimes people think it gives them an excuse to act out in the church. I'm just going to rail against God and rail against the church, and I'm going to you know, skip out on the things I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to treat everybody badly, and once I get better, everyone's going to be like, oh, good, you're all right. When in reality, the church is supposed to help each other renounce those worldly passions. I understand you have this passion, but you need to renounce its control over you. Now, that's rather unusual, is it not? That we're sitting here, group of people gathered on a Sunday morning in December, saying that we are renouncing the things that drive most people? That's what it means to be a Jesus freak, isn't it? That our standard and our motivations have been actively changed forever. Have you ever noticed that even on TV or the internet when they're talking about Christians, if they're not believers, they really don't get it? Like, like you, okay, you kind of get this, but you really don't grasp that. Even in what's going on in Israel, and I'm not trying to make it all sober and serious for a minute, but when they talk about this conflict between the Jews and the Muslims, people that are not believers have a very hard time grasping this. Like, I don't, under, I don't understand. I don't understand. It's, I can sit there and go, I understand. I might not approve, but I get it. I get having something that is so detached from what the world usually thinks that it drives you. And this is what we are as believers. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but the, whoever does the will of God abides forever. James 5.4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Yikes, huh? So we renounce those things. The grace of God, represented by Jesus' incarnation, teaches us to renounce the world, to renounce ungodliness. The second thing it teaches us to do is to live. First to renounce, now to live. This is the positive response. So you've got the negative response, meaning I will not do this. Here's the positive response. I will do that. And this is something that folks can be reluctant to do. We run across this in the prison ministry quite often, where somebody is more than willing to say everything I've done before this is wrong and I'm a sinner and I belong here and I shouldn't be and I'm so sorry I've done that. But then you want to start talking to them about self-control, start talking to them about managing your anger, start talking about love and kindness, and that's when somebody gets real stubborn. <laughs> Isn't it enough that I've already renounced all the bad stuff in my life? Well, no, it's not. Because we have to live. To live. And he gives us three ways that we're supposed to live. Number one is self-controlled. We've talked about this before. A lot of these words he's giving now are the same ones that were to describe the elders in the church in the previous chapter. So again, you can't say, well, that's just for elders. I'm not one of those, so I, can, I don't have to be self-controlled. Yeah, you do. 
The word means sane. We talked about this. To be sane, to be sound-minded, to think straight, to be self-controlled. The opposite of that would be inebriated or intoxicated. That I'm in control of myself is what we are all to be. Mastery over our impulses and our actions. Now, some folks are like, well, is it really fair to say that we have self-control? Isn't it that God is controlling us? Well, yes, but God is driving us to have control over ourselves. Because if you've been regenerated in Christ, your desires are in the right place. You're Romans 7. I want to do what is good, but I have a hard time doing it. Well, the grace of God will train you and equip you to start making the right decisions. So that you are no longer mastered by your passions, your impulses, even your thoughts and ambitions and plans. But you are self-controlled. It's a very important Christian virtue. We've got to remember self-control. Next is upright. This is the word for just or righteous. So when you're in control of yourself, in submission to the Holy Spirit, you're going to do the right thing. You're going to do the good thing. It's not a self-control that like, okay, now I can go to the gym and bench 800 pounds. You know, it's, no, it's self-control to live righteous, to do what is right. Self-control to obey all the commandments the Lord gives us. That I'm not going to covet. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to make any graven images. I'm not going to, and on and on it goes, to do the right thing. And number three is to live godly. This is a great word here. Godly, it's eusebos. If you've ever heard of the church father Eusebius, his name comes from this. And eu, E-U, that, that sound in Greek, is a positive one. It means good or beneficial. And so what this means is good worship. Take the word for worship and the word for good and put them together and you get this word godly. You could even translate it pious. So check this out. We are living self-controlled to live a good life, but it's not just a good life. It is a Godward life. It is an obedient life. It is a life that is worshipful of the true and living God. Because there's another bad route you could take, which is Christianity is all about being moral and the worship doesn't count. Some folks think the worship is all that counts and it doesn't matter how I live. Others will say, as long as you're living right, who cares what you believe? Well, the grace of God trains us to be self-controlled, to live a good life that is worshipful. You might say pious towards the Lord. Put real plainly, it teaches you to sing praises to your God to offer prayers, to attend church, to serve and evangelize and do all the things that God has commanded us to do, to not allow other philosophies and other religions and other gods to steal your love, but to only direct those things towards the Lord. The grace of God trains us to live. James 2.26 says, As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Now that shouldn't scare you because if you're walking with Jesus, those works are just going to start to come, right? An apple tree without apples might as well be dead. Because, oh, I, I don't have very many apples. Well, you got some. <laughs> you got some. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. Good. That's what the Lord requires of you. Faith without works is dead, but the grace of God trains us to live good works. So we need to make sure that we don't get so wrapped up in that initial moment of salvation that, or God changed me. Good, but have you changed? Have you actually changed? I don't know a lot of y'all. Even in the time I've known you, I've seen many of you draw close to the Lord and it begins to change things. One of the amazing things you learn as a preacher is the simple preaching of the word of God changes people. 
It's not just that they get saved, although glory be when that happens, right? But their lives turn around. Their marriages get better. They stop snipping at each other. They stop trying to undercut one another. The children start to listen to their parents. People's addictions just kind of start to fall away. False theology just kind of is proven false against the word of God. And it's brought under subjection to the Lord. That's why my preaching is to just give the Holy Spirit room to do what he's going to do. Which is why, like he's saying to Titus, you can't go halfway on this stuff. Say everything that I told you to say. And it's not always pleasant. I'll tell you that. When I open up and I'm like, oh, great. We're talking about Jephthah this week. Wonderful. <laughs> That's why we teach verse by verse through the Bible. So I can't skip stuff. Because sometimes if I had my druthers, I might want to skip stuff. But it's all important. All right. What is the third thing that the grace of God trains us to do? Waiting. Trains us to wait for the return of Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope. Blessed hope is that Jesus is going to come again and take us to be with him. He told us in John 14, verses 2 through 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. You maybe have heard that translated mansions. The word mansion has changed definition over time in English. So he's saying, my Father's got a big old house, and there's a room for you. It's probably very, very nice. Don't worry about that, okay? If it were not so, would I have told you that I'd go to prepare a place for you? Jesus is saying, if I was not going to come get you, would I be sitting here telling you all about the place I'm preparing? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. It's fascinating to me how many folks will say things like, well, Jesus never said he was coming back. I don't know why Christians believe Jesus is coming back. That had to have been invented after Jesus died and they didn't know what to do. Well, Jesus himself said this. Before his crucifixion. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, after Jesus ascends and the apostles are staring up into heaven and the angels come and have to shoo them away. Say, hey, this Jesus whom you saw go up into heaven will come back down from heaven just as you saw him go. So as Christians, we have the comfort of heaven after our death. And that's such an important thing. I don't know how you're supposed to live life without the comfort that you're going to see your loved ones again. But our great hope is not just to die in Christ. Our hope is the return of Jesus. Our hope is the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What does that mean? Not everybody's gonna die. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Is the thing about that? Here's something that you never heard before. I'm gonna tell you a mystery, Corinthians. We shall not all sleep. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise. And we who are alive will meet them in the air and we will forever be with the Lord. That's our hope. And I'm not going to get into all the eschatology of it. We just did Daniel and Revelation. We got studies on 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We did a prophecy conference. You get it. Our hope is that at any moment, Jesus could return before I finish. And in my opinion, the belief in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is the only opportunity that you have to live with actual imminent anticipation. There's nothing that has to happen before Jesus returns. We don't need to see the Antichrist. We don't need to see the temple. We don't need to see Israel have a certain kind of territory. America doesn't need to fall. EU doesn't need to do this. Islam doesn't need to disappear. Nothing. Jesus could return today. That's our hope. Is that I wake up every day knowing... Jesus might come back today. Jesus might come back today. And it teaches us, he says, in this present age, we read in verse 12, right? To live this way in the present age, 
because we know that the new one could break in at any moment. The grace of God manifested in Christ Jesus. His work on the cross trains us to renounce the old life, to live the new one, and to hope for his second coming. Grace, the appearance of Jesus, the gospel, affects the way you live your life. And if it doesn't, I question if you have truly understood it. And one of the great things about discipling, especially teenagers that are a little more free with their expressions and their reactions to things, is when they don't quite get something, and you sit there and explain the theology to them, and those connections start to get made in their mind that because of this, I live this way, because Jesus loved me that much, that's why I'm going to do it. You can see, they kind of smile, oh, that's cool. Because that's what it is to grasp that. Like, Jesus loves me. Yeah, you better believe I'm going to live a godly life. Because Jesus could come back today. I don't want to be caught doing something I shouldn't. I want to be able to say, yes, he's back. That's how we live. But I should not rush over verse 13. Because this contains a very, very significant phrase. You probably saw it. That he says, we are waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory that could also be translated the glorious appearing. It really amounts to the same thing, right? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul refers to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is called by Paul here, our God and our Savior. Many people dispute this reading from various angles, because they usually have a reason to believe that Paul would not have said this. Usually it's a historical reason. They'll say, look, the church didn't believe Jesus was God until hundreds of years later. You say, why do they think that? Because some dude in the 1800s came up with a theory and that we're still following that. You say, it gotta be more complicated than that. I promise you, it's not. I've done the reading. Historically, the church didn't believe that. This is even why some people believe Paul couldn't have written Titus because the church didn't believe Jesus was God until hundreds of years later. What's their proof for that? Well, they don't have proof. Some guy wrote a book one time. Or maybe they have a philosophical, a philosophical disagreement. Now look, religion is not all about believing that Jesus was God. It's about believing his word, believing his, his, his teachings and his doctrines. Who really cares what it is? So, you know, Paul, the, the early church understood this. So it really it might say that, but it really is completely irrelevant. That's one of Satan's most insidious attacks. Does it matter if Jesus was God or not? Yeah. Yeah, that's like the only thing that matters. Does it matter if he rose from the dead? Well, Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're the most pathetic people you've ever seen in your entire life. Because right here, dying for a lie. And then some people have theological reasons. They don't believe that Jesus was God. So there must be a problem in the Greek somewhere. Someone must have corrupted this. That's how you know that somebody is prioritizing their teaching over the Bible. If all they have to say is the Bible is full of corruption and error. Where are those errors? Well, anywhere it disagrees with me. Anywhere my book disagrees with the Bible, Bible's wrong. And how do we know? Well, because I've heard from God, and Paul didn't. But let's look at what the Bible actually says, right? We, our, our philosophy of interpretation of the Bible is the literal, grammatical, historical method, meaning we take literally what are the, whatever the words say, there's no secret meaning behind them, right? Words mean what they mean. Grammatical, the order of the words and the way it was written matters, okay? 
as we're going to see in just a second, and historical, meaning you cannot import 21st century meanings into something that was written back then. That's why we go back and look at the Greek. We look at the culture. What would it have meant to them in that time? So let's look at the grammar. And when you look at this, we've got to talk about a dude from the 18th century named Granville Sharp. So if you're looking for a baby name, uh, <laughs> Granville is not bad. So Granville Sharp and then whatever your last name is. But that's a, that's a glorious name here. But uh, this fellow was a, a, not a professional theologian. He's not a pastor or anything like that. He was just a student of the word of God, especially of Greek. And he developed many rules that he recognized as he studied the Bible and published them, and he's recognized as a, a, a Greek authority even to this day. But here's the one that concerns us the most. He formalized a monumental rule of Koine Greek that has yet to be taken apart because it's true. And here's how it affects us. This is the rule. It's grammar. Stick with me, okay? <laughs> First of all, if you have a construction like this, the article. Now, what's an article? In English, our articles are a or an and the, okay? So if you have the Greek article, it conjugates lots of different ways. But if you have the article plus a noun, which is a person, place, or thing. <laughs> Some people, I knew that one, yeah. <laughs> the Greek word chi, which means and, and another noun. If you have that construction, so article, noun, chi, noun. If you have that, then those two nouns are referring to a single object, not two different things. This is how the grammar works. Now, there are more rules to this here. It's actually rather long. I, I forget how many uh, requirements need to be met, but let me just suffice it to say, this verse meets all of those requirements. Daniel Wallace has a great book called Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics that will probably bore you to tears mostly, but he's got the best breakdown of this if you wanna go check that out. This is what's called the Granville Sharp Rule. So, what this means is, this cannot refer to two things, grammatically, not theologically, grammatically. This cannot be saying the appearance of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Great God and Savior are the same thing, God and Savior. So whatever God is, that's what the Savior is. And you know what that is because he tells us Jesus Christ. This then is a New Testament reference that specifically identifies Jesus as God which is no surprise to us, because we know that Jesus was born of a virgin, he walked on water, he cast out demons, he rose from the dead, he preached the true gospel, the Lord thundered from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he appeared to John, we know all that, but there are some people that will say, well, but the Bible never says that Jesus is God. Yes, it does. You say, it says it right there in Titus chapter two, and they'll say, well, that, that book doesn't count because that one's late. No, it's not. You think it's late because of what it says, which is exactly how we don't do history, is it? The manifest grace of God is the Son of God. God, very God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not the only place that does this, by the way. I'll just give you three obvious examples. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he writes and he says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the other example of the Granville Sharp Rule that applies to Jesus as God and Savior. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Well, what's the word? What's the logos? We don't, yeah, we do. He says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about Jesus. So if you want to replace the word with the name Jesus, in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Romans 9, verse 5, Paul, speaking of the Jews, he says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Never mind the fact that the New Testament calls Jesus Lord over and over again, which is a rather significant title if you know your Old Testament. Never mind that uh, Thomas, when he saw Jesus risen from the dead, he called him my Lord and my God. This is the great confession of the New Testament. Something we must never lose sight of in this present age. You believe Jesus was God? Yes. Quick answer. Yes, I do. So you're saying Jesus and the Father are the same person? No, I'm saying that there is one God manifested in three persons, who is three persons, and Jesus is one of them. So it's, well, I, I think you believe Jesus was a good person, but not that he was God. Well, that's not New Testament Christianity, my friend. We know that Jesus is God. That's why we sing his praises, why we pray in his name, and that's why he's going to be the one to take us to heaven one day. Verse 14, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So who there, of course, is referring back to Jesus Christ. As Paul explains what Jesus did, and what his goal was in doing that. It says Jesus gave himself. Of course, this is a reference to the cross. It was death on the cross as a sacrifice. That Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice. Jesus was not pressured or forced or compelled by anyone to the cross. Jesus in John 10, 18 said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. For I have this authority from my Father to lay it down and also to take it back up again. Jesus laid down his life. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He willingly went to the cross, meaning Jesus willingly died for you. It wasn't like he was handcuffed and forced and said, oh, okay, I guess this is what we're doing now. No, he willingly went to the cross. Hebrews 9.14, a very similar verse, says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Real quick, do you see the Trinitarian formula in that verse? The blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. I just like to point those things out. It's all over the New Testament. So why did Jesus die for us? First, he says, to redeem us from all lawlessness, which is what that verse in Hebrews said, to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So for forgiveness of sins, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, which means to buy us back. That we've been sold, you might say, into the slavery of sin. That is a debt that we owe that we can never repay. Well, Jesus came to buy us back by his own blood, to propitiate the wrath of God and draw us to himself. That's the gospel. Good news. You can be forgiven today. Many people, especially those that march about oh, we need to get rid of shame and we need to get rid of law and get rid of, of standards. Those are the folks that are the most guilty. That's why they march so loudly. That's why even when we do things like our pro-life ministry, 
We can't hate these women and these men that screech so loudly about how abortion is a good thing. I should be able to shout it from the mountaintops because in all likelihood, that is somebody who has committed that sin and is racked with guilt over it and has dedicated themselves to squashing it out. We must stand against what they're trying to do, but we also must be able to let them know, do you know that Jesus can forgive even that? The forgiveness that is offered in Christ, the redemption that is offered in Christ. But what comes after that? That's what he did, but what was it for? To purify a people, to set apart. It's what purify means. Pure is the Greek word for fire, by the way. So to burn up, to burn up all the impurities and set apart for himself a people, a congregation, which is the church that would belong to him. Much like in Exodus 19, when God set Israel free, so he said, you will be my peculiar people. You will be the ones that I have chosen for myself. That's the love of God. To give up everything, his own life, to save a bunch of sinners like you and me? I know what I'm like. You know what you're like. Your wife knows what you're like. <laughs> Your kids know what you're like. And you know about them kids. But Jesus showed the grace, the love of God, in giving up himself to make you a part of his people. To get you on his team. That's love. That's love. Hebrews 12.2 says Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Very often the New Testament compares it to the pangs of childbirth. The women endure the pain of childbirth for the joy that is set before them. And the characteristic of the people that Jesus has redeemed for himself is that they are zealous for good works. There it is. We're coming right back to the beginning about what are you meddling for, preacher? What are you trying to tell me how to live my life? Because the gospel trains us to live this way. And that's the whole reason Jesus died is to save us, but also to purify a people that are going to live a life zealous for good works. Zealous means fiery, passionate for good works. And in fact, he doesn't use the adjective there, zealous. He uses the noun, zealot. He says, to redeem us from lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealots for good works. That's how you can define the church. Zealots for good works. I am a passionate, all-consumed, fiery do-gooder. <laughs> That's what it means to be a Christian. Paul told Titus to teach practical righteousness because that's why Jesus died. For a holy church that I'm going to purify for myself a group of people that are going to live the way that I have taught them so that they go out into the world and they start to transform it. You know, we're disciples of Christ. And that means we believe the gospel. But to be a disciple means to live according to the discipline or the teaching of somebody else. Consider all the things that Jesus taught us. He taught us how to live. Jesus talked an awful lot about life. Did you notice that? Talks us an awful lot about love, about how to love one another. He talked an awful lot about even money. Yeah, that's, a, that's a study that'll break your heart. Read through the Gospels and write down everything Jesus said about money. Like, oh man, <laughs> that's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I didn't want to hear about burying treasure in heaven. I didn't want to hear about giving things away. And I wanted to hear about, you know, sound investments and rate of return. And Jesus is like, yeah. Money ain't no thing. So the best thing you can do for your money is invest your money in heavenly riches by using it for the kingdom of God. Or marriage. Jesus talks an awful lot about marriage, about the way we talk, about the way we go to church, about the way we pray. His teachings matter. 
Don't ever let Jesus just become a symbol in your life. That Jesus is a symbol of who I follow. That, that's good. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's not enough. To be a Christian is to live the life that Jesus has taught us to live. He says, I'm going to die on the cross so that I can forgive the sins of all these people and then turn them loose on the world and they're going to live just the way I taught them. That's what it means to be a zealot, to be truly trained in the gospel, to be part of the Holy Church of Christ is to have a fiery devotion to good works. That I, the most passionate thing in my life is to live righteously, regardless of my circumstance. Well, I can't do that. I'm poor. Well, I can't do that. I'm rich and I got a lot of responsibilities. Oh, I can't do that. You know, it's just, it's a political season. Oh, I can't do this. You know, it's a, it's a hard economic season. Oh, I can't do this. I'm in school. Oh, I can't do this. We haven't had kids. I can't do this. I'm single. All kinds of excuses. We shouldn't be offering up excuses. Even if you're going to eventually get around to it and do it. You know, when you tell your children to, hey, can you go upstairs and clean your room? <sighs> Fine. And you say, hey, check your attitude. And they say, what? I'm doing it. We can be like that with God, can't we? Hope you, hope maybe none of you have, but every now and then, God will check my attitude. He'll be like, what? I'm doing it. I'm preaching. What do you want me to do? I don't understand what the problem is. But that's not what the Lord wants us to be. Zealous for good works. It was your attitude stinks. Fix it, Tyler. And sometimes we go, oh. So it's not enough just to do the right thing. Now I've got to feel good about it too. Lord, like, yeah, because I, I can do this stuff, but your heart is what I want. Your heart is what I want. Now you might say, okay, but is zealot really the word that we want to be? Because zealot sounds like a really nasty word. And you know, when, whenever we hear something nice from an atheist, it's usually like, you know, there's lots of very good, respectable, reasonable Christians out there. Not like those crazy, passionate, you know, weirdos out there. And you know, I want to be in that category. So I want to hear something nice about me once in a while. But he says, be a zealot for good works. Remember about Simon the Zealot? Remember Jesus' disciple? The apostle, Simon the Zealot? The guy that carried a knife in his, in his robe? In imitation of the Sicarii, the assassins, what would they do? They would find out people that were selling out to the Romans and they'd get them in a big crowd and they would come up behind them and pull out their knife and pull it in and then walk away and nobody would know. And they said, we've struck back for the kingdom and we're going to overthrow Rome. And that kind of passion. They were called zealots, zelotes. They were zealots. And Jesus says, I want you to be like that for good works, for good works. So much for the idea that being saved doesn't change my life, huh? But zealot, I mean, that's not really my personality, you know. It's like, okay, we'll see you on game day and see if that's your personality or not. But <laughs> Romans 12, 11 says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Slothful. What does it mean? Lazy. I remember I watched a documentary one time with the kids and uh, it was a sloth on an island and like there was a boy sloth over here there was a girl sloth over here and she was like you know giving the mating call and the the, you know, the the male sloth will now begin his long arduous journey and like it took him like three days to get like a mile and i was fascinated just watching this like that poor cameraman had to sit there <laughs> following the sloth you know maybe we'll take a step today and lazy slow paul says don't be like that in your zeal in your passion, but instead to be fervent. It's related to the word for fever. Burn it up in your spirit as you serve the Lord. So yes, zealot is exactly the right word. 
That every one of us, not, not just to be a nice, respectable Christian. We are supposed to be respectable, don't get me wrong. But when it comes to the things of God and the commandments of Christ, I'm zealous to do them. This kind of person will comb through the Bible. Am I doing this right? What else has the Lord asked us to do? Because like David, I delight in your commandments. The place in the Bible says, more than my necessary food, I'd rather have your word. To sift through his own life, right? Search me, O God, and know me. See if there's any wicked ways in me. See if there's a place where I need to be corrected. See if there's an opportunity in my life where I can do good. Not sit there doing, okay, we're not going to do this because Jesus said not to. You ever hear somebody say something along the lines of, look, this is a sin. I wish it wasn't a sin. But Jesus said, don't, don't do that. I delight in your commandments. If God said it, praise Jesus. I'll do anything Jesus said. Let's not live that way. So much for being a nice little church, provide a little social glue for the community, huh? supposed to be a community of zealots and do-gooders. Man, angel trees. Seems like there's always something going on. Well, there's always needs that need to be met. Zealous for good. It should be like Black Friday out there, pushing each other out of the way. I want to give this one to somebody. I'm not telling you to do that. You know, trampling people down and, you know, people getting, you know, taken back. Saying, oh, you've, you've got enough. You've got 10 of those. So you can't. But I want to do this. Zealous for good works. That there's a need in your neighborhood where some child needs help with something. I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to be the one. Zealous for good works. Somebody says, hey, man, let's, let's go over here. Let's go out to the party night. Who knows what's going to happen? No, no, I would never. No, not in a million years. Hey, chill out. I can't chill out. Jesus died for me, man. Yeah. Zealous for good works. That's the kind of people Jesus died to separate for himself. And if you're here and if you're a Christian, you're one of those crazy people. So verse 15 Declare these things, Titus. Exhort. To exhort is kind of like, let's go. Let's do this. And rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. So Paul explained why you can give people such specific instructions because of the gospel. It's exactly what Jesus was trying to get us to do. If all this is true, how can we go back to the old way of living? We're supposed to be zealous for good works. So Titus, teach that. Tell them that. To correct the dissenters, not just to exhort, but to rebuke. So somebody stands up in the church and they says they got a problem with that and they don't want to do it, it says you rebuke them. Don't let them teach that. Stand your ground with all authority. Stand up with the authority that is yours in Christ Jesus, as I have tried to do this morning. Because there's always those who want the church and want Christianity to be something else. And it's not always that they want it to be wicked, you know. It's not always like, well, I just think we should worship all the gods all at once. There are some churches that do that. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that have opinions about what church is supposed to be. And it can be from within the church or without the church. The most common, as I said, is like, well, you know, it's social glue. It's just something to tie the community together, that we've all got this thing that we do. We all kind of believe the same morals. And, you know, it kind of keeps the population under control. And then out, out they go. Well, that's, that's not what Jesus talked about, is it? I defy you to find that description of, of the church in your Bible. Or folks that want the church to be a, a political force. Uh, we've got power because there's millions of us and get out of our way. And there's a lot of folks who are not very religious, but they're rather political that say, you know, these Christians, they, they really usually vote for us. So how do we get them riled up to kind of tap into that raw electoral power, you know? You see those people. Next year's an election year. Just wait. It's already happening, but it's going to come again, right? 
Again, not a bad thing necessarily, but comb through the New Testament and see if Jesus talked about that. Or people that just wanted the church to be a place where I can get hyped up and get my encouragement for the week and then I'm going to go out and I can conquer the world. I hope you get some of that when you come here. But oh, don't, don't talk about that rebuking stuff. None of that crap. I don't want to hear about blood. You know, if, I, if I bring somebody to church, I don't want them to walk away feeling bad about themselves. Well, sometimes you should feel bad about yourself, you know. Sometimes you open up the Bible and it's not there to give you a compliment. Sometimes it's there to give you a stiff rebuke. Want Christianity. They want the church to be something else. They have a vision for how this can fit into society. I watched a, uh, a podcast the other day and I had to turn it off because it was making me nuts. You know, because there's a, there's a part of my soul that can get rather infuriated. And when I feel it starting to get stoked up, I know it's kind of time to step away, but there were these, these atheists and they were talking about how, you know, we really made a mistake. And the mistake was we tried to force the church out of society. And now with all these crazy woke stuff, you know, we really need the church back. And at first, like, well, it's nice to hear you say that, you know. <laughs> but then as they go on to talk, I realize they had no intention of changing that. You're not about to start, well, let's talk to some pastors on this podcast. Let's get some Christians in here. They just, they felt that they had arrived at some conclusion, saying, oh man, we are so smart. We're just the smartest people I've ever heard of. And well, now that's kind of, that ship has sailed, so what are we going to do? And, you know, like we're not out here still doing that. And so I could just preach on that if I wanted to, let that anger come out, you know. But uh, all that was is, you don't get what the church is. You, you're like, well, we just should have let them teach their stupid ideas, and hold us all together while the you know, rest of us smart people didn't believe in any of that. But we need them for all the idiots that are going woke now is kind of their whole tone. Hey, that's not our job, man. My job is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. To go out there and tell people what Jesus has done. And then we go out and live our lives. And that's when all of those benefits you love so much start to happen. But if you try to ignore all of this, you're building on a foundation of sand and it's going to fall apart. So your job is to take your life. As, as small or as big as it may be, maybe you've got wide influence. You've got people that work for you. You've got people that listen to you around the country. Maybe you have some kind of online influence. I don't know. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you're like, man, if I can get my, you know, my husband to listen to me, it's been a good day. You know? Or maybe you don't have that much of an impact or an effect outside of your life. That doesn't matter. God doesn't worry about that. To live every aspect of it in obedience to your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To do good as much as possible. To look at every part of your life and saying, where can I do good with this? Where can I serve Jesus Christ? That doesn't mean to make every part of your life religious, by the way. I mean, that everything has to have a fish on it. And everything has to be, you know, something that is churchy and church related. It's about taking the teachings of Christ and living them out in his name everywhere you go. To even down to things like, all right, how do we talk to our neighbors? That has an awful lot to say about how you treat your neighbor, doesn't it? How do we treat these neighbors? How do I treat these kids? How do I keep this household? How do I work this job? How do I engage in this relationship? How do I confront this person that's causing trouble? How do I engage online? How do I vote? All these things, guys, are affected by your desire to do good. And the best part is when you start living like that, you start tending the garden that God has given you, all the things that are happening around you that you have no control over, they become less important to you. That's Psalm 37. Do not fret yourself because of evildoers. 
Because you're going to look at him, you're going to look away, and look back. Where did he go? Where did he go? We were so worried about that guy. We were so worried about those people. Where did they go? Oh, they're gone. Because that's what happens to wicked people. They vapor. They vaporize. They blow away in the wind. But the ones that do the work of God slowly, steadily, every single day, they're the ones that abide forever. To truly understand the grace of God is to become a zealot, which is just what our community needs. More zealots for good works. Zealots for Jesus. And the last thing I'll say on this is if you are living the Christian life and you're not pressing on to that fervent spirit that Paul talks about where you're living every aspect of your life for the glory of Christ, you're not really diving down into the deep things of Jesus, then your Christian faith is probably rather unsatisfying for you, I would guess. Because I know, because every time I've tried to live that way, all of a sudden it just becomes annoying because <laughs> it's getting in the way of all the things that you really want to do. But then those things don't satisfy either. So then you start to blame God. Is God messing this up for me? If it wasn't a stinking conscience, then you know, I'd be having all sorts of fun. No, you wouldn't. You'd be miserable. But my solution to anybody that feels like Christianity is boring or that church is boring or that the Christian life is, is kind of useless, you're probably not doing it right. You're probably trying to fit it in to all the rest of this life that you're living just like everybody else. My encouragement to you is try being a zealot for a while. And then you'll realize, oh, this is what they were talking about. This is what it means to renounce the world and embrace zeal for good works. That's what Christian maturity is. Passionate, zealous Christianity is mature Christianity.